This episode of Primitive Culture is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 180,000 titles for smartphone, tablet and desktop. To get a free audiobook of your choice and to help Trek FM at the same time, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. And also by Enterprise in Space, an international programme of the non-profit National Space Society. Find out how you can help science and education and become a virtual crew member aboard the NSS Enterprise Orbiter by visiting enterpriseinspace.org. And if you want to join the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode, join the Babel Conference, our listeners group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field. We look forward to seeing you there. This is Tim Russ, Lieutenant Commander Tuvok on Star Trek Voyager, and you're listening to Trek FM. Open your mind to the past. Oh, this may mean something. I've been coerced into watching tonight's movie. You do have books in the 24th century. It's a primitive culture. I'm just trying to blend in. Some people think the future means the end of history. We haven't run out of history quite yet. Hello and welcome to Primitive Culture, a Trek FM podcast all about our history, our culture and how Star Trek relates to it. I'm Duncan Barrett and today I'm joined by the custodian of the sanctuary, Tony Black. Hi Tony, how are you? I'm, I'm very well, Duncan. That makes me sound far more official and important than I absolutely am. So it's a nice intro. I might just put that now on any letterheads or anything I send out, custodian of the sanctuary. <laughs> I like it. That can be your, your like, I don't know whether you've ever done the Trek Profiles podcast, but at the end of that, you get given a, a kind of official <laughs> position okay. uh, within the Federation. That could be yours. That'll be mine. It made me wonder, though, actually, what um, what inspired the name The Sanctuary? This is obviously another episode where we're, we're going to dig up one of your recordings. Although in this case, I think one that never went out. So this right. is a, a genuine premiere. But what, what was behind the idea of... Uh, of the name The Sanctuary, I'm curious. It actually came from the episode Past Tense in Deep Space Nine and the idea of the Sanctuary District. Uh, I was trying to think of a name that would be evocative of politics and uh, the, the, you know, the economic strife and, and these kind of things. And the original very, very crude artwork was off The Sanctuary District <laughs> until I managed to get right, something I much see. better. Um, so, yeah, it just felt like quite a, a, an evocative name that did have some relevance to some of the things we were talking about. Yeah, so um, it's not as good as primitive culture. Not that you're fishing for that, but it's not. Uh, but <laughs> yeah, it's not, it wasn't too you bad. Know, in nearly five years, I don't know if I've come up with a better title than primitive <laughs> culture. So, <laughs> But um, no, that's very interesting. So it's a kind of ironic sanctuary. I, I don't know, I was sort of imagining something like like a Bajoran temple or something like that, some place where people go to discuss, uh, you know, great... Uh, weighty topics but yeah the sanctuary district maybe you're not the custodian in that case no, yeah. <laughs> you might actually yeah i, I you won't might have reject that, that idea <laughs> yeah yeah um anyway tell us a little bit about this episode that we're uh going to be putting out today because this is one that you recorded back i don't know whatever it is a year or so ago but uh never quite made it out in the first instance right mm, that's right this was recorded i think around eight around May, possibly, May, June of 2020, which was a little bit after the intended uh, date, really, that would have been perfect for it, which um, you may well be listening to it on. But this is an episode that I titled in my head Evolving Federations, and this was recorded with a uh, a Star Trek fan called Mike Slammer, who 
uh, hosts a very good Star Trek podcast on my podcast network we made this called We Are Starfleet, which is ostensibly about Star Trek Discovery, but is also going to cover Star Trek Strange New Worlds and maybe the Star Trek Starfleet Academy show, if that ever comes along, uh, that's rumoured. So he knows his Trek, Mike, and um, he joined me for a conversation about a, a, a classic what-if idea, basically. What if... It wasn't the Vulcans who landed in 2063 on first on what became First Contact Day. What if it was any of the other major Star Trek races, whether it's the Romulans, whether it's the Borg, the Cardassians, uh, and uh, or the Klingons? And what happens? What happens then? And we we went into a uh, hypothetical scenario of what might have come of humanity in that alternate future post-World War Three, Would we have even seen a federation? Um, I think we conclude in a lot of these, <laughs> these wives, no, <laughs> is the answer. Mm-hmm. Um, we got lucky, basically. Yeah. In, well, that is, in I think that's exactly that a point out. that's yeah. made. We got quite lucky yeah, with the Vulcans. Sure. But it was just a very interesting conversation to have because when you really dial down and think about it, there are, there are so, so many different paths that this could have gone down, depending on who actually showed up at the door. It's interesting. And I mean, in some ways, this kind of uh, discussion, it can seem sort of frivolous insofar as it's you're like you're discussing things that never happened. But there is a whole history. You know, there is the idea of counterfactual histories. I think way back in the 1930s, Winston Churchill was writing counterfactual histories. Um, and, you know, some serious historians have put a certain amount of thought into these kind of experiments, really, really kind of historical thought experiments of how things could have gone a different way. I always think it's interesting as someone who writes about the past to try to engage with the uncertainty of people in a given moment. So, for example, something like something I've written about many times is D-Day. Well, we all know that D-Day was a success uh, and that obviously, you know, the Allies went on to win the war. At the time, D-Day was a massive gamble. And for anyone, you know, listening to the radio or reading the newspapers or whatever, um, the level of, let alone anyone, you know, fighting on the beaches and, <laughs> you know, actually taking part in it, there was a real kind of question mark as to what was going to happen. Uh, and I suppose sometimes these kind of what-if scenarios help us to to remind us that, you know, history isn't just something that's set in stone, even if it happened before we were born, even if it happened, you know, in Star Trek's perspective, First Contact Day is is kind of uh, a part of, not ancient history, but it's, you, you know, it's several hundred years ago from the perspective of most of our characters, but that it could have, uh, it could have gone differently. And it's always struck me, one of the things I love about First Contact, the movie, is I don't think they ever mention that it's going to be the Vulcans who arrive, do they? Up until the point that that ship comes down. Because I remember the first, the very first time I saw it in the cinema, and I feel like a lot of things about that film had been spoiled one way or another, you know, if you were a Star Trek fan who was digging for information <laughs> and reading the magazines and probably looking on whatever very basic websites existed around that time. But I had no idea that it was going to be the Vulcans. I don't know why it didn't occur to me. They kept talking about first contact with another species. And I was like, oh, yeah, that sounds important. And for some reason, with all the stuff with the Borg going on and all the drama, it never really occurred to me to think forward to um, who that species might be. And then at the end, when the Vulcans come down, it's a, it's a big reveal. It's kind of a twist in a sense. Uh, and it it makes sense 
retrospectively, I think because that movie is essentially the starting point or the jumping off point for Enterprise as a series in some ways, where the Vulcans play a big role and we see that relationship between Earth and Vulcan as very uh, key to the kind of pre-Federation era, uh, it all sort of, that almost seems like a kind of fait accompli. It seems exactly like, you know, talking about D-Day, this is something that was always going to go in this direction. But in fact, if you think about it, you know, Next Generation... Did they have any Vulcans? They, well, they had the guy in, in Lower Decks. Um, they, you know, they really steered clear of Vulcans. Deep Space Nine as well. They had uh, that one Vulcan character, I think, in the Marquis. I can't remember if there were many it others. It was the I mean, Vulcan basically, captain, wasn't there, that Cisco had a bit of a... Right, a yeah, right towards, the, right towards the end. Yeah. And, and that, I think, yes, that very much sort of uh, anticipated the... <laughs> this kind of narky Vulcans of Enterprise, <laughs> you know, that these kind of superior, arrogant, uh, difficult ones. But Next Generation had sort of, in trying to step away from the original series, had I think really tried to step away from the Vulcans. So to bring them in at that point, I never really thought about it this way, but it, it is also a kind of nostalgia for Star Trek, isn't it? Just as the characters in the movie are nostalgic for First Contact Day, which to them is this historical event bringing in the Vulcans in that really significant way is almost sort of harking back perhaps to the original series, I don't know, or to what we think of as kind of classic Trek. No, I think maybe it is, because it's like you said, much as it makes sense retrospectively, it wasn't anything I think that had necessarily been put down in the Star Trek lore before first contact was was written you know it, i don't necessarily think there was a there was a document saying it was the vulcans who were the first ones but and like like you say it does then lead on in many ways to what they do in enterprise but it's easy for us now and maybe to just assume that that was always what was in the back of everyone's mind when they were writing star trek and thinking about humans first contact with with aliens but i don't know if that was really something that was there before this movie so there was an assumption, I think, that the Vulcans made sense. And that's why it's so interesting to to look at the fact that it could have been, if it was relatively that they just happened to be in that solar in that area at the time, and they detected the warp expert, you know, all, all that stuff going on, then could it have been a Vulcan ship? Uh, could it have been a, a Romulan ship? Could it have been a Klingon ship? Could it have been a Ferengi ship, you know? And then then what happens? And I think what we what we get into is that it all, obviously all depends a lot on the different cultural realities of all of those all of those races. So naturally, the Ferengi might try and exploit humanity for profit. The Klingons might necessarily come down and annex in some way. The the Romulans might try and put bring Earth into a protectorate. And so there's lots of possible ways that it might go, but. I think it's like we said, we, we, the Star Trek universe wouldn't have existed. I think it had to be the Vulcans in some way because I don't think the Federation could have existed in the same way and that future had you not had benevolent aliens come down on that day. Had it happened in any other way, I think we would have ended up with a very different human future. It's also a sort of nice symmetry because the Vulcans are sort of a proto-Federation in themselves in some ways, insofar as, you know, we later learn things like the Prime Directive are adapted from Vulcan practices. Uh, I don't think the Klingons or the Romulans are going around uh, <laughs> with any rules like that about how <laughs> no. they treat other worlds, you know. I mean, of course, in some ways, uh, I suppose the difference between maybe this kind of speculation and a kind of counterfactual history or something like that is that as as you said i think you, you know if any of these other options happened 
most likely we don't get Star Trek. And of course, this is sort of working backwards. I mean, when we say, you know, why does it have to be the Vulcans or whatever? Well, it had, at the point that it had to be the Vulcans, there'd been 30 years of Star Trek already. You know, it's a kind of chicken yeah, and egg situation. Yeah. So it's it's interesting as a sort of hypothetical, but at the same time, from a sort of production point of view, uh, the egg comes before the chicken, yeah. if you know what I mean. Yeah, 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 <laughs> if, yeah. if, the, if the egg is Star Trek and, uh, you exactly. know, the utopian future of Star Trek and the chicken is the first contact with an alien species, uh, it, it's a retcon. It, I mean, it's not it's not a retcon as far as it doesn't contradict anything, but it is filling in a bit of uh, continuity and answering a question that I... Well, I mean, I certainly, at the time as a Star Trek fan, hadn't ever thought to ask, even though it seems like a pretty uh, important one. So it, I think it was a very clever move what they did in that film. Um, but yeah, it's interesting as a, as a sort of thought experiment, as a kind of exercise, as a way of thinking about what these different uh, species represent and their different kind of behaviours. Um, it's also it's interesting you recorded this two years ago because it feels very much of the moment. I don't know if you watched the Marvel animated series What If, yes, I did. which was basically a series of exactly these kind of, uh, y- y- you know, half an hour on each of the what if uh dr strange was evil what if there were zombies everywhere that was a weird one Uh, (laughs) you know what if all these all these different realities and obviously now marvel is leaning massively into the multiverse uh with the new dr strange film and uh the recent spider-man film and so on um i mean star trek obviously has kind of played with the idea of the multiverse we had the episode parallels and i suppose you could say the kelvin verse is basically a massive what if scenario and with picard season two i mean i don't think this is too much of a spoiler because it's in the trailer q has this line about uh the road not taken you know this is another story about about an entire reality featuring the sanctuary districts from what we've seen um that is based on the idea of, of an alternate reality uh, uh so Obviously, this is very much in Star Trek's ballpark. Uh, it's not inconceivable that we could get a Star Trek episode that shows what would have happened, just as in the movie, as you two point out, you know, we see what happened if the Borg turned up uh, in 2063. You know, we, we could have an episode that sees what the what happened if the Ferengi turned up and screwed around. It's, it's, it's very much an exercise that is in the kind of realm of the kind of stuff that Star Trek likes to do with its science fiction... Um, you know, uh, repertoire. I think we said in the episode that it would make, at the very least, a good comic series that IDW or someone. Oh yeah, out. definitely. The, uh, yeah, definitely. The what if? And you could you could do all these various different versions of it. You know, and, that, and there have been there have been version. There have been a lot of um, alternate sort of counterfactual things written and, and put into comics in the past in Star Trek as well. So it's definitely, like you say, something that could be done and is very much in vogue. So. On that basis, I ho- hopefully people will will get something from it. I, I think that it is it is basically a question that sort of doesn't date in some ways because it's it, the only way it would date is if Star Trek introduces an, another race that is as important as and as iconic as the ones we cover, and that will take quite a long time to do, and it's probably fairly unlikely at this point now. So, I think. Um, it maybe is one of those episodes that can be listened to at any point, really, because the question will always be the same. You know, the what if, <laughs> what if it wasn't the Vulcans? So, so yeah, hopefully it will. I think it will appeal to anyone who likes those those kind of stories. And I've always loved that counterfactual stuff. You know, I can't get enough of that. I think it's fascinating, and certainly where Star Trek is concerned. 
There's another interesting point that you raise, actually, in your discussion, which is what is the impact of the Vulcans, not just on Earth and, you know, peace and post-capitalism and all this wonderful stuff that happens, but specifically on Zephyr and Cochrane, because obviously there's this big disparity in the movie between Cochrane, the kind of uh, drunk... Uh, lecherous, <laughs> grumpy, <laughs> difficult guy yeah. who builds this uh, rocket, and then Cochrane, the you know the noble, aspirational hero, who, as you point out, we see later in the premiere of Enterprise. And I was quite interested in that that dichotomy. I've always sort of assumed, and I don't know, maybe Ron Moore or Brandon Braga or someone has even said this. It it sort of seems kind of inescapable to me that Cochrane is a Roddenberry uh, figure. That's how I've always sort of taken him, that he he sort of encompasses both sides of Roddenberry's personality. You know, the Roddenberry who wants to make a quick buck, who screws over Alexander Courage by writing fake lyrics for the music, who introduces the idiot as a way to sell merchandise, you know, who's always kind of uh, got his eye on the bottom line, but who also becomes this kind of deeply committed, almost sort of messianic figure around whom you know, the fans congregate, you, you know, he sort of buys into his own, uh, his own sort of reputation in some ways. And by the time of next gen, he is very much not to say he's not a complex and conflicted and, and you know, unusual person in many ways, but he has very much bought into this kind of utopian ideal uh, and made that a part of himself. And I think obviously that is presumably the journey that we see Cochrane going on, but whether it's the Vulcans who are the kind of, uh, the Star Trek fans to to Cochrane in that instance, kind of pushing him in the right direction. I don't know. It's an interesting question. Yeah, perhaps. Yeah, because it, it just it was something that it just struck me, and that you do see that you do see a disparity, and it it feels like there's a whole other story to be told again, a whole other story to be told there with Cochrane, and just the the functional aspects of how it would have worked after that that moment at the end of First Contact re- Contact really interests me. You know, how do you get from there to Enterprise within 90 years? You know, which might sound like a long time, but there's the, in the grand scheme of things, it's not at all. So, mu- so much can happen, but also so little can happen, if you see what I mean, in, in that space of time. So I think it, 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 it does feel like it opens, this question opens up a lot of, a lot of doors, really. And there's, there's still a lot of unanswered questions. It's, I think I say in the episode, it, 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 that ninety-year period, in some senses, is the is the least likely to be explored in Star Trek, uh, certainly on screen. But mm-hmm. in some ways, would be the most fascinating to see because it, that really is the formation. So Enterprise obviously deals tries to deal with the formation of the Federation. It doesn't quite fully get there, but it tries. I'd love to see the formation of th- how we got to Enterprise. You know, and I think yeah. that would be a fascinating story. I'm sure it's been maybe told in certain Star Trek novels and things like that, but it, I don't know. I feel like that still is a big gray area. And this is the essentially the moment and the question that leads to that. It's the jumping off point, isn't it? It's yeah. the, you know, it's also it's the reason that in that mirror episode of Enterprise they use this as the kind of jumping off point for the for the mirror universe right. in a sense. Although obviously presumably the mirror universe was different before that point as well, but but it's sort of implied that this is the key uh moment of divergence somehow or or, or a moment where things could go um in different directions. Yeah. But I think you're right. It's that would be a fascinating story to tell. I mean, I always thought Enterprise started off a bit too Star Trek, if you know what I mean. They exactly. could have they could have pulled it back a bit on the other hand i suppose it's the hardest part to tell because it's the bit where you really 
have to make sense. It's not just doing the world building. It's it's like bridging the gap. Yeah. And that requires a sort of more detailed, more specific, more granular kind of uh, relationship to reality yeah. <laughs> in the world as it is now, maybe, even though this is obviously, you know, post-World War Three and blah, 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 uh, than Star Trek typically likes to do. You can't just, you know, do the hand-waving uh, and just accept, yeah, and then we, you know... Uh, then we built replicators and we fixed everything or whatever. It's got to be a bit more uh, complex than that. And I think it would be fascinating to, uh, you know, have a kind of a story that tackles that, but it may be one of those things that Star Trek is never quite going to want to pin down. No, I think, I think that we might, we might get there if somebody is brave enough to do the Brian Fuller idea of an anthology show where each season you do a different mm-hmm. story you could absolutely the fargo style you could absolutely do that then you could do a 10-part story yeah. or whatever and tell that um but i'm not sure bring back james right. cromwell yeah Why not you know exactly great yeah yeah, yeah absolutely yeah. you need to do it before he uh <laughs> while he's still around you know well, yeah. he's, he's getting on in years <laughs> um but uh yeah maybe one day who knows definitely fantastic all right well i hope listeners uh enjoy listening to this uh conversation i think it's an interesting chat as i say and uh see you again soon tony thanks duncan enjoy everybody joining me this week is mike slamer host of discovery podcast we are starfleet to discuss a hypothetical today what might have become of humanity, and indeed the Federation, if humans had not made first contact with the Vulcans, but rather a different alien species? So, Mike, it's great to finally talk to you. As, as I say, you've been doing We may, we Are uh, Starfleet, and you're doing great work on that, getting into Discovery. So it's really nice to finally be able to podcast with you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for having me on, Tony. I really appreciate you. Oh, it's a pleasure. So let's talk about our topic today. It is, of course, the foundation stone for Starfleet and the United Federation of Planets, the whole idea of first contact. In 2063, after decades of world war and post-atomic horror that defined the mid-21st century in Star Trek's universe, as seen in the movie First Contact, Zephram Cochran makes his first warp drive trip beyond the solar system with the help of the crew of the USS Enterprise-E, thereby attracting the attention of the Vulcan uh, Empire passing through nearby. The film ends with a prototypical Vulcan landing in Montana, Earth's first official contact with an extraterrestrial species, and from that develops a century in the universe of progress from a depleted, near-wiped-out territorial race to a united Earth, a unipolar system, and the first voyages of Jonathan Archer's Enterprise. The question we're asking today is, what if... However, the Vulcans were not the ones who first arrived. What if it had been the Romulans or the Cardassians or even the Klingons? What if Earth's collision with alien life, an event both hugely political and spiritual, had led to further war, conquest and even self-destruction? What if, basically, they hadn't been so lucky? Would Starfleet ever have existed? Would the Federation? Would Gene Roddenberry's utopian future have been halted before it even began? So, in general, Mike, before we get into all this, what do you think? Do you think that they had a lucky escape with the Vulcans turning up? Uh, I think they couldn't have gotten any luckier. <laughs> uh, with, you know, and, uh, and in our previous discussions, um, you know, when, when we first started talking about this a little bit, the more I think about it, the more I am firmly convinced that the only way that humanity could have become a spacefaring species is with the Vulcans 
or the Romulans in a different capacity, and mm. we'll get into that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay, that's in- yeah, that's interesting. There are different facets to look at all this. The the moment of first contact in Star Trek is one of those things I think that almost is taken for granted, given that we, you know, we're we're centuries ahead of this moment when we're in all the Star Trek series, and there's only a few instances where, and particularly the movie, as I say, where it is expressly focused on, but. I mean, it, it was, it would be for our culture, for our world, the single most important moment in, in human history. That that moment where an alien spaceship lands, you realize you're not alone in the universe, and it begins a process, particularly a process after a, a period of, of devastation. I mean, it, it's, this, this is a huge point. Not just for the rest of the Star Trek universe, but for humanity in general, this whole moment. The chemistry and the right mathematic calculations that would have to come into play for uh, creating the perfect environment for first contact in the Star Trek world to happen, uh, that can be another episode of the sanctuary <laughs> in the future. Yeah. You know, definitely. because you mentioned, you know, th- the earth goes through such massive devastation. World War three occurs. And if we take the events of first contact, uh, the movie to be absolutely truth, then Zephyrin Cochran wasn't some altruistic scientist seeking to, you know, bring humanity into the future. He was just trying to make a quick buck. Yeah. You know, he, he, he just wanted to retire to a little island, you know, get some Mai Tais going, <laughs> you know, if any of those, any of those islands existed anymore, well, uh, following the devastation. Yeah. But, you know, it, it brings into thought, uh, what if? There's a lot of what ifs involved. You know, what if, uh, it wasn't Picard on the Enterprise E? What if it was, um, what if it was Kirk who came back? You know, what if it was Janeway who had come back? Yeah, I think, you know, a lot of those events would have transpired a little differently, but ultimately we would have wound up where we are because at the end of the day, it was the Vulcans who landed. Mm. Yeah. And I mean, you you know, the the very, the very fact of the whole thing taking place in the first place is being one big predestination paradox in that the only reason that Cochrane ends up being able to, to do this is because the Enterprise are you know, are, are there and the, the crew are helping him. And that's only because the Borg have invaded and gone back in time, which, and, and this is, this is what I love about this because then, and this is the genius of enterprise because then that event creates, you know, mm-hmm. Borg debris that then leads to the message going to the Borg in the future that gets them to earth in the first place. It's wonderful. It's a wonderful little paradox, but it, that, it, yeah. it, it it's, and so if, it's the chicken and the egg scenario, you know, which came first in this Mm -hmm. case. But it is that whole thing of it takes the Star Trek future we know as an influence point to actually get the Vulcans to turn up, that actually that it works out at that point that Zephram Cochran is in the right place at the right time for a Vulcan ship passing by when it could have been, it could have been anybody else. And I think, like you say, there is a completely different episode, I think, in exploring what we know about that era, because I think it, there is some particular interesting questions like, you know, who, who was in charge at that point? What did the, what did the geopolitical landscape of the world look like in 2063? You know, we only see that farm in Montana. You know, we're, we're, right. the, the, it, it seems like a lot of the nation states have collapsed. It seems like there isn't really civilization as we know it today scarily only 40 years <laughs> in the past um, but 
you know, it's it, it, and they, there's talk of things like the Eastern Coalition and all this kind of thing, and that's some that's a completely different podcast. But I think the idea is, like you say, Cochrane is there to make a buck. He's he's thinking of it more in an economic sense. But you mm-hmm. know, when they turn up, who do the Vulcans deal with? This is what I keep wondering. Do they deal with does does Ephraim Cochrane suddenly have to become a po- politician? He doesn't strike me as the type. No. no, but then there is that episode of of is it broke? It's Broken Bow, isn't it? I think where. You do see, you do see Cochrane. I'm sure you do. And he's in like he's in like a he's in like a suit, isn't he? And there's that that moment where he's he's giving a speech, and he's older. Right. It's hard to say because, in my opinion, Zephyr Cochran would have kind of seen the light, so to speak, and realized like, okay, my science is leading someplace, uh, and he will achieve the fame and notoriety that he so desires uh, through following that. And his interactions with Jordy on the planet's surface, um, you know, uh, that scene where Jordy LaForge is saying, "Oh, this is where this is where your statue's going to be," and then Zephyr turns around, and he's like, "I got to take a leak." What? I don't detect a coolant leak. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's. I think that kind of plays into it a little bit and it made him realize, you know, that that was the first step. So, yeah, he was greedy. He wanted to make the buck. But ultimately, after his interaction with the Vulcans, realizing that there's an entire, uh, you know, starfaring civilization out there and that maybe humanity can join them was maybe a bit of a turning point. So maybe he would not have become a politician, uh, but maybe more of a uh, like a talking head type influencer that uh, that we would have in today's society. Maybe he's also like a symbol, you know, maybe he becomes, and this is why, you know, he ends up with, you know, years later he ends up with the statue because he becomes, in that future, he becomes the equivalent of, say, a Isaac Newton, you know, or an Einstein. He becomes one of those people whose name is carried through history for some kind of, you know, Particularly, I'd say Newton actually is a good example because he, you know, the invent the the inventor, quote unquote, the man who discovered gravity. You know, su- such a such a huge moment in the history of science and the Enlightenment. Cochrane by accident, nonetheless. By accident, yeah, and and in some senses, Cochrane Cochrane can't get where he needs to go on his own. You know, and the history and, and first contact reworks history to that point that it it takes you know the enlightened hum- superhumans of the future to actually give Cochrane the little leg up from this drunken, dishevelled guy to actually the person who can do it, which makes you rethink all these different, you know, legends in history. You know, how many of them did the story play out exactly as history is recorded? You know, it makes you wonder. But Exactly. Um, but, you know, I mean, <laughs> the whole legend of Isaac Newton sitting under a tree and an apple falls on his head and he goes, oh! <laughs> I figured it out! <laughs> you know? So it's, yeah, rarely is it as simple as it seems. But I guess... That's why when the it, the Vulcans turning up are crucial in order to make that next step, aren't they? Because they are they are going to approach a situation like this, and somebody like Cochrane, who maybe the humanity when once once they realise what's happened and it starts to filter out, maybe they they see Cochrane as somebody who is like a symbol of what they could be again or what they could be going forward, and you know it could be almost almost a bit like how the Vulcans try and baby them a hundred years later in Enterprise, would it be the same here? You know, would they really sort of be metaphorically holding Cochrane's hand and saying, look, you don't know how you're doing this. You, we don't, you know, we need to sort of do it together. <laughs> I think it's very likely that, that that's exactly the case. Um, uh, as we see throughout Enterprise, the Vulcans have a kind of a heavy hand on the development of humans' first steps into the galaxy. So it would, it, it absolutely plays into them having the same heavy hand on Cochrane. 
But they, they, I suppose they come into it with a level of, you know, with their logic, they would come into it with that level of, you know, you, we, you can't rush this. You know, this is something that has happened. We found you. It, but then, you know, would it, would it have been any, I mean, this is what I always think as well. Would it have been any different from any other sort of first contact for them? You know, they, they've been around for years. What makes Earth any different from, you know, Rigel 6? With, 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 right. You know, and that, that, I mean, that's a whole different conversation in itself as well. But like, it, would they have, would they have seen anything different in, in humanity than any other species? Right. Well, I, I, I do think that, um, humanity was a bit more anxious and a bit more eager to explore and, and get away from earth. And, and we do see that in enterprise as well. There's a lot of, there's a lot of butting heads and it stands to reason that early on, you know, the Vulcans, they came, they see that, you know, here they are, they're about to go out into, into the universe and there's Klingons out there. They've already had many, many uh, skirmishes and tensions with the Klingons. Um, they know about the Romulans. They know about, you know, well, presumably they know about the Ferengi, uh, Andorians, Tellarites. They know that there's a lot of uh, tension and conflict and that humanity simply isn't ready and they'll be taken advantage of. They could be completely wiped out. And the Vulcan logic says, Hey, keep them safe, keep them in their corner of the galaxy. You know, let's bring them in a little bit at a time and then, you know, we'll see what happens. So I think a little bit of, uh, a little bit of that Vulcan science experimentation and a little bit of curiosity and uh, a little bit of wonder surrounding like what these very smart, very clever, uh, ingenuitive and highly emotional people would do. Yeah. Yeah. Being that, that temperate sort of side to it, absolutely, which is where it would have differed from many of the other examples here. Exactly. <laughs> and, I mean, I mean, you mentioned the Romulans, so let's let's start there. I mean, you know, we, we the humans obviously at that point don't know any di- any different. You know, they all they've got to go on is science fiction. Where you know, let's let's assume that Star Trek didn't exist in the in the Star Trek universe itself. They've maybe they've had Star Wars. Maybe they've had you know uh, all, all these different sci-fi movies. The Thing, Independence Day. Maybe they've had all that stuff. So they've seen all the the traditional sort of alien stories, but they wouldn't they wouldn't have known any different when someone turns up. So when the Romulans arrive, would they have? Would they have been any different from the Vulcans in the first... Besides the fact they look the same, essentially, they look very similar. Would they have approached Earth in any different kind of way, even if their motives were completely different, ultimately? Well, yes and no. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I think that, number one, it would depend on, you know, who were the Romulans who were scouting? You know, what type of individuals were they? Were they a bit more uh, charismatic? Were they a bit more... Um, were they more opportunistic and looking to make a name for themselves? Uh, were they, you know, if they were simply on a scouting mission for the Romulan Star Empire and they saw this, you know, they saw Zephyr Cochran come up and they turned around and they said, hey, let's go check these guys out, see what they're all about. I don't necessarily agree with some with some ideas that I see about Romulans turning them into a penal colony. Uh, there, there's a there's a comic book called Star Trek Deviations that um, uh, a comic publisher IDW put out. I didn't read it myself, um, but the, basically the tagline is uh, um, 
if I can remember correctly, a penal colony prisoner, William Riker, discovers a, you know, some secret, you know, that then there's some prisoner who is holding the secret to humanity's uh, quest for the stars, you know, and it's, it's one of those takeaway what if type beta stories that, you know, only only will would exist in the comics. Um, and I don't think that the Romulans would come in and be like, Oh, no, 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 you guys are all now a penal colony. I think that would be 100% realistic. If they were the Cardassians. Uh, but with the Romulans, I think they're a bit more uh, they let their curiosity lead a lot like the Vulcans. And they would handle it in a more emotional manner. Uh, they would absolutely make first contact. They would very tentatively judge the situation. They would judge that Earth as a whole is very chaotic um, and ripe for being taken advantage of. Yeah, they would have maybe seen opportunity, wouldn't they? In a, in a, in a different way to some of the other races in Star Trek history. They because they're not necessarily they're not like Ferengi and they're going to approach them from a purely capitalist perspective, but they are in the business of exploiting resources. They are in the business of, you know, in many cases, colonization or some kind of, you know, would they have brought Earth in as a, as in, into their broader empire as a territory, as a colony, as a if not a penal colony, if not if not like turning them humanity into like workers and slaves, but sort of bringing them in as a protectorate and bringing them in as more of a you know expanding the borders of the Romulan Star Empire and sort of suggesting it's in your best interest, guys, almost like the mafia. It's in your best interest mm-hmm. to pay us protection money because there's some terrible people out there, and if you're in our empire, then you're protected. <laughs> like you know, and then they get they, yep. they have like a, a, a Romulan governor sort of take over and sort of run the place. I could well see them doing that, you know, and and Earth not really having much say in it because they don't have nearly the resources to fight them off. Potentially. Exactly, exactly. And we do see that um, while Romulans do subjugate what they deem as uh, lesser races, uh, I do believe that humans, uh, much like Vulcans, are so close to Romulans, you know, physiologically, Mm. uh, biologically, that we would very much become like uh, maybe not necessarily a sub race, but uh, we certainly wouldn't be on equal footing. And we would be treated as a colony. Uh, We would very likely be living in service of the Praetoriate, you know, the Romulan Senate, you know, would come around, you know, once every, you know, couple of years or so and, you know, grab whatever they deemed worthy that we were producing, you know, whether it be our wine or our art or, you know, whatever pieces of culture are still alive, you know, they would very likely take it and just make it their own, uh, treat it like a manufacturing supply depot. And, we would live as part of the Romulan Star Empire. I don't think that we would truly have our own fleets. We wouldn't, you know, go out there and be like, okay, hey, you know, we're Romulan Starfleet. That wouldn't happen. You know, there's no Romulan Federation to speak of, but we would become part of the Star Empire. You know, and I could definitely see humans serving on, you know, the uh, 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 Daedalus class vessels. Uh, I could definitely see them, you know, going back and forth between different planets and sharing culture and being ambassadors uh and going through through the romulan social order fascinating thought isn't it actually that they could have ended up part of not a federation by any means but part of a broader alien empire where 
You know, because there's every possibility. Had the Romulans got to Earth and the Federation had never existed, the Romulans might well have done the same with a lot of the other races who end up in the Federation. And you might have found that the Romulans essentially took over and their main antagonist potentially would be, say, the Klingons, you know, who are a big space-faring race themselves. And maybe the Vulcans. But, you know, it would have been a very different landscape. And it could have been that, yeah, humans are going off to Andoria, but Andoria is part of the Romulan you know, star empire as well. And they're sharing, and it, mm-hmm. it would have looked like Rome. It would have looked like ancient Rome. It would have looked like where you had Romans at their zenith, you know, controlling parts of say, I don't yes. know, well, Northern Britain, which would have been way far away from Rome or, you know, Eastern Turkey or wherever, you know, right on those borders. And, mm-hmm. and the people in those lands, if they did travel, they never would have gone anywhere near Rome, you know? So humans wouldn't go anywhere near Romulus, you know, and the emperor would be this, or the empress would be this distant figure, like in ancient Rome, that you heard, you knew existed, but you you couldn't, you wouldn't be able to say what they looked like, you know, <laughs> you know, or maybe you could because oh, yeah. you'd have travel, but it wouldn't. Do you know what I mean? It would, it wouldn't be. <laughs> yep. It wouldn't be the same. It would, it would be. There would be a very distant sort of imperial ruling base, and humans would just be a small, very tiny part of this great big fabric. That is. To be honest, Mike, it sounds a lot more realistic than the Federation. <laughs> it, 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 you know, and and another reason that I, I 100% agree with you on this one is, uh, you know, the the more cunning and the more uh, the more dangerous of Romulan society, they're the ones who survive and thrive, right? So I could see the same thing, you know, here in in on Earth, uh, the most cunning and the most uh, uh, tyrannical, the the most evil among us would probably rise through the Romulan echelon and kind of join them a little bit more hand in hand, you know, just like uh, with the with the Romans when they came through and they came to Northern Britain, you know, they made chiefs out of you know whoever was in charge. They made them the governors of that territory in order to exert their own control. So it's like, hey, listen, you know, you're a bad human. We're gonna make you the bad human boss of Earth and you're gonna control everybody here. So there was no opportunity for a more altruistic science-based society to rise. Whatever we had been given by the Romulans is what we would be happy with. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I agree. I think I think it would have been something that we just we didn't really know any different you know we didn't know any different within Mm -hmm. that grand sphere of things you mentioned when we were talking about it you wondered if we might alternatively be seen as kind of like an experiment akin to how the zat vash in star trek picard used the borg artifacts and yes and and that's an interesting way to look at it you know would we have what would what would what would that have looked like (laughs) you know i'm trying to recall how many episodes of Star Trek really centered on first contact type stories. And it's not a bulk, right? So think about it this way. If there are, let's say, 20 races in the immediate galaxy, and we're the only ones that the Romulans found who have just discovered warp drive. So, you know, for them, it's like, okay, hey, here comes the science and the curiosity side of it. These are humans. They are biologically, physiologically very similar to us and Vulcans. Um, you know, we're a bipedal species like many other races in the galaxy, and we've just discovered warp drive. What can we do with this? Let's see where this goes. I 
you know, on that flip side that we had talked about, I, I, I could definitely see them boxing us in a little bit, making sure that we didn't go beyond a certain barrier and kind of seeing how we developed. And they would they would have a heavy hand similar to how the Vulcans did. And they would treat us a little bit more um, a little bit more directly, whereas the Vulcans were kind of tacit and very, you know, hey. Uh, you know, you just discovered warp five. That's cool, but don't go over there yet. You know, <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> the Romulans would be like, "Oh, you discovered warp five? That's where Konos is. You should go there." You know? like, <laughs> I think they would. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Go check it out. Yeah, yeah. Definitely mm-hmm. go say hi to those guys. Yeah. Um, I could, I could see something like that happening, and uh, you know, the the Zapvash, you know, was very specific uh, regarding um, uh, the singularity and uh, and and AI and how all that transpired. Um, but I could see, you know, maybe like the, the tall Shi'ar being heavily involved in how earth developed and how it became a spacefaring society of its own accord. So although we might not be directly subjugated by the Ryman star empire, all of our vessels, all of our technology, everything that we have would be basically, uh, descended from the Romulans. Yeah. I think that the best way of looking at it would be that we weren't, we were in a protectorate, but we weren't protected, if you see what I mean. And mm. Whereas the, yep. with the Vulcans, they very much sort of shielded from what it seems like. And, the, you know, that, that period between like 2063 and like 2150 something, when Enterprise begins, that's that's a whole other period of Star Trek history that hasn't been a sketched out, which would be fascinating to see happen, you know, sketched out much more. That period before we get to, you know, the formation of Starfleet, before the Federation. Yeah. But, that period is fascinating because that's the period where the Vulcans really stamp their mark on human culture, and that's how, that's how they help humanity build a unified Earth government. And you know that in itself, again, we're spiraling off to different podcast conversations here because that in itself is a fascinating idea. How do we get from a post-Third World War society to a unified world government that no? no set of cultures in the previous four, 5,000 years ever managed to make happen. So exactly. And it's because of the Vulcans. My, that, that, that the only response to that is the Vulcans helped. sow the conditions to say, look, you are part of a broad, a greater fabric that exists. That is way beyond your nation, your nation, your tribe, your tribe. You need to stop thinking so tribally, so nationalist and think you are one among many, you know, as a planet. And I think that's what that's what the Romulans wouldn't have done. I don't think the Romulans would have fostered anything like that in the same way. I think they would have happily seen Earth still be nation-based with their controlling overlord sort of governor. And, mm-hmm. you know, if humanity happened to sort of war against each other a little bit, as long as it didn't cost them economically, I don't think they'd have cared if parts of humanity were killing each other. Whereas the Vulcans did and the Vulcans worked to help erase that and I think that's fascinating in that it would have been it would have been a very well we know it would have been a very different direction but it's only because you have that protecting hand sort of saying you don't have to be like you were this is what you could become is what gets humanity there and yeah that wouldn't have happened with the Romulans um (laughs) (laughs) would it have happened with another with any other alien species though I mean would it have happened with species that are more physically alien, you know, visibly alien, like Andorians, mm-hmm. Tellarites, you know, the, the kind of aliens that are on the doorstep, essentially, galactically. What if they had turned up? Would it have been a different story? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think you don't really need to look 
too much further than our own issues with uh, with race and culture and, and on the planet today. Uh, the Andorians and the Tellarites, um, Andorians. You know, if you just were to click on a Google image and pull one up, you know, they got these funny little antenna, you know, blue skin um, and Tellarites. Similarly, uh, they they have. I mean, I was going to say it. They're ugly. They're ugly. They look like there, there is no beating around it. They got these big, big noses, these deep sunken eyes. You know, yeah. some of them have these little canines. You know, others have like some some uh, like like big horns and teeth growing out. <laughs> So, you know, let's let's say, for example, the Andorians came down, you know, and they're, they're kind of uh, they're a little aggressive, you know, they're a little they're a little off putting, you know, and I don't know that humanity in 2063 coming out of World War Three uh, would have been very accepting of that. You know, I, I think they would have viewed them primarily as an antagonist and, you know, would have said, hey, if, you know. You know, Zephyrin Cochran would have pulled out that shotgun that he was hiding underneath <laughs> his coat and blown him away, you know, and that would have yeah. just set off, you know, may- maybe that's where the mirror universe comes from, you know. <laughs> I, well, I'm sure there was a, there was a, I'm sure there's a comic or it could even be in, in a mirror darkly where you see the history of, of that. I'm sure that something like that happened. That they, they just pulled a gun That's, on the alien or the Vulcans and just yeah. shot them. I'm sure it is. Yeah, I think you're right. <laughs> yeah, that's. I was directly referencing uh, in a mirror darkly. That's it, when, isn't um, it? Yeah. Uh, the, the, that that touch off point, you know. Yeah. Um, does that explain everything? No, not exactly. But I, I, yeah. But similarly, Andorians, the Tellarites, I think they are a little bit too far removed for a pleasant first contact experience with humanity Mm -hmm. and you know them being brought in as part of uh the vulcans um uh uh, introductory plan for humans to outer space if you will you know the five-step program (laughs) it makes sense that the andorians and the tellarites are somewhere around step four yeah yeah (laughs) you know like Hey, listen, you guys, you know, get over your own stuff. Stop fighting. Here's space. We have good looking ears. Those guys have blue skin and they have pig noses. It's all fine. We're all friends. Well, it's it's true because when you meet the Vulcans, they're not that dissimilar physically. You know, they they have they have the pointed ears. But apart from that and, you know, the, the sort of bowl haircuts. But apart from that, they are they they don't look too different. You know, if ever if ever in the old um you know, in the old movies and TV shows, you know, when Spock goes to 1986 in The Voyage Home, all he has to do is put a bandana around his head and nobody knows he's any yeah. different. Like, <laughs> you know, you could yeah. if Spock had been a Tellarite, they wouldn't have been able to make that that, <laughs> that film in the exactly, same way. Exactly, exactly. You know, he goes back to, to 1930 in City on the Edge of Forever yeah. and he gets, he gets arrested and the cop is like, what's wrong with you? And, you know, Kirk's like, oh, he's a Chinese rice farmer and he got... <laughs> He got into an accident, and the cop is like, "Oh yeah, okay." Yeah, which is terribly racist. <laughs> you look back on that, but like, oh god, yeah, really bad. But like, yeah, exactly, exactly. People would would buy it, and you think, well, you know that the rules are different when you get into aliens that look visibly different. And 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 you're absolutely right. You know, I mean, we don't know a lot of the conditions as to exactly, or I can't remember off the top of my head anyway, as to exactly what caused World War Three. What caused, you know, the so-called post-atomic horror that they talk about in TNG, all these things. But you, it's probably not difficult to assume there was some kind of nation-based conflict that was fueled in no small part by problems about immigration, xenophobia, the kind of things that we're finding 
that are getting that are causing problems today and that are fueling a lot of the things that are going on in this in well in Western civilization. Let's face it, um, yes. all over the place. So. You know, it's not hard from our perspective to sort of see how they might have got to something like that. So to then try and think, okay, humanity have got past this war, presumably with the billions who died, those left are thinking, do you know what? We can't do this again. We can't go through all this again. We've got to change. We have got to change the way we think. So, you know, in, in a much bigger way than after the Second World War that you started to see a lot of countries engage a lot more with socialist programs, you know, welfare states, things like that, to actually give things back to a people who had been quite shattered by conflict. So in this case, it would have been on a massive scale. So they would have embraced the Vulcans' ideas, probably, in, mo- in no small part, and gone, okay, cool. But if, yeah, if it had been a Tellarite <laughs> guy turn up with his face, or, 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 a, or a brittle Andorian, because I suppose that's the thing with Andorians. They're just very brittle, aren't they? Defensive. You yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, you could imagine you say the wrong thing. You look at them the wrong way, and hey, that's it, man. You're getting a phaser to face. right. Exactly. Yeah, diplomatic incidents galore. Whereas if you insult a Vulcan, a Vulcan will just go curious, <laughs> you know, just, <laughs> and they just get on with their day. Um, yep. And that's the thing. They you can can you imagine the amount of initial like defensiveness that Vul- the Vulcans would have faced. Actually, thinking about it on those terms, you know, aliens, a different culture, they would have soaked it all up probably because they have the logic to think humans are irrational. This is all part of the process, you know, the five step plan, as you said, right? Yes. Whereas other alien races wouldn't have done that. You know, you wouldn't have had Andorians, maybe Tellarites, have the patience. (laughs) <laughs> to put it with humanity that's true I, it's, that's true would they have even bothered to land you know like that's, yeah. that's another question yeah you know, it's it's one warp vessel you know just doing its first doing its first trip you know i don't know that it's enough to really catch the attention of uh of more fast-paced energetic you know hey i'm on a mission type species you know whereas vulcans are they're naturally curious you know romulans they're naturally curious yeah so that could be that could be that could be the case what about Klingons then? Because they're obviously a completely different ball game, aren't they? You know, the, the Klingons are a, an aggressive war-like race who are, you know, very much inspired by the idea of conflict. Their whole culture is based around violence. You know, it, it, even if, you know, in later s- series we find out there's a nobility behind that violence, there's a nobility behind their, you know, their culture and their mindset. Surely they would have just wiped humans off the planet you know they invaded i think the klingons are relatively cut and dry in that respect would they have landed on a you know war devastated earth they would have found you know whatever humans left barely surviving we wouldn't have exactly been great sport i suppose I don't know that our, you know, what our armies were like, what what type of forces we even had in terms of security. You know, there were pockets of resistance and the quote unquote Eastern coalition. Uh, so it's hard to say that if the Klingons were to come down, would they have faced much resistance, if any at all? And I think they would have just, you know, see a human, kill the human, doesn't matter. <laughs> you know, like we're going to. And. Again, you know, it's it's hard to judge the Klingon Empire fully because we don't know their entire history. Like, you know, the uh, their their culture, their ways, 
it's all about, you know, the warrior caste, right? And, you know, they kind of take control of the Klingon Empire uh, a little bit further into, into the Star Trek timeline. So, during that period of time, it's all, as far as we know, it's, it's all the houses are kind of broken up and they're competing against each other for, for dominance. You know, they're trying to rise to power. And in uh, Jonathan Archer's time, he is the one to make first contact with Klingons, professionally speaking, uh, as he delivers a wounded warrior who had crash landed on Earth um, back to Kronos. So, that kind of kicks off all the war. It kicks off a lot of tension and conflict between the Klingons and humanity until, uh, you know, eons later when we have the, the Kittimer Accords. And that is solely based on the fact that Klingons didn't have any idea that humanity existed. So, what if they did? What if they knew that there was this race, up and coming, technologically smart, we're friends with the Vulcans, we're friends with some Tellarites and the Andorians, and, uh, you know, we're getting better at, at, at starships, we're getting better at subspace communications, uh, we're getting faster. I think that they would have jumped on an opportunity early on to squash us while they could. Mm. Yeah, I think you could well be right there, because while the while the Romulans seem even back then to have been a very imperial system, a, a very controlled system of you know an expanding territorial empire that is ruled by a central imperium, like you say, the Klingons were a feudal system. You know, they were based on what in the old days in our society would have been a very sort of medieval feudal state of different like in this case, houses for them, but in our case, different kings and territories and, you know, warlords battling each other across the globe in different parts of the world. In the Klingon society, it, it could even have been a house. And let's say for, you know, for the sake of continuity, house Duros, because they were always causing problems. <laughs> you know, it could even be, okay, a, yeah. Yeah, you know, a particular house who decide that humanity are a threat and they go after them. And, you know, you, you wonder how, like you say, how much of a defence would humans at that point been able to put up? I mean, you get you get references in first contact to the Ica satellites that then rain some fire on Montana um, early on. So that there are clearly some sort of orbital weapons that were presumably used or are holdovers from the, what you'd guess, a thermonuclear conflict or something like that that happened with World War Three, But... They don't see, they're not like the equivalent of photon torpedoes or phaser fire, you know, or that kind of aerial bombardment that in theory a Klingon bird of prey could do. So, and ground troops, you know, like that's the whole thing. Klingons would just deliver like whole legions of fierce warrior ground troops, you know, with batlets. How are you going to fight them off? Oh, yeah. You know, you know, I was uh, I was just watching. Um, well, you know, as part of my podcast, I was watching Star Trek Discovery, and you see these great Klingon warriors with their batless, and they are they are lust with power, yeah. and they are drunk on on combat. They just go for it. And can you just imagine being, you know, uh, a human in Montana hanging out at the bar, and you know, your buddy Zephram <laughs> just just comes over and he's like, "Hey, man, I just, I just, I just, you know, met up with these aliens. Check it out. They're coming down. They land, and out come these massive Klingon warriors <laughs> with their bat lefts. Yeah. You would, you, you would lose your mind. You'd be like, "Oh, this is it. This is it." And you'd be right. Yeah, yeah. Invasion, pure and simple. 
invasion. Although that's the thing, you know, Klingons, they're not evil. I mean, that, that's the whole thing. They're not, they're, there's not a malevolence necessarily about the Klingons, but there is definitely a territorial aspect. There are points in Star Trek where they are trying to expand territory, where they're trying to get a, you know, they're, they're, they're locked in their own sort of permanent Cold War with the Romulans, you know, that's gone on for a long, that's long true. time. You know, and they are, when they collectively work as an empire, the Klingons are quite powerful, you know, and they have, you know, admittedly, as Star Trek goes on, they become less powerful and they t- they, they lean a little bit more on the Federation, particularly in the 24th century for support, but, mm-hmm. and they end the 23rd. But and let's assume at this point in the 21st century, they are a powerful group of feudal houses that exist with, within a cultural banner. And yeah, you know, there there is there is no reason why they wouldn't see humans as, you know, pataks to just kill and slaughter. <laughs> yep. And yep. you know, f- and are are just not worthy of their, you know, respect because that's the thing with Klingons, it's respect, isn't it? They, you know, if they yep. they want honor, maybe they would see a dishonorable people who are just worth slaughter. Or they may even enslave they may even enslave humanity and have them become workers. Although that, I suppose you mentioned it at the start, that maybe that fits the Cardassians a little bit more if it was the Cardassians who turned up, perhaps. Yeah, I think uh, I think the Cardassians would definitely just start right there out of hand. Um, you mentioned earlier it would kind of depend what Klingon house it was. And if it was uh, like the house Mokai, you know, they would be potentially more interested in enslavement uh, or, or uh, worker camps or something to that effect yeah. or manufacturing base uh, because Earth is very resource rich. You mm. know, we do have a lot of metals. We have a lot of food supply. We have water. Uh, it's a very temperate environment, whereas the Klingon homeworld is, is a series of volcanoes. So I think that <laughs> That's true. You know, it's the Klingons might say, "Hey, you know, let's uh, let's go for a vacation. You know, we'll set it up. We have our workers there already. They'll they'll make it real nice for us. You know, maybe they'll heat the planet up a little bit and get rid of some of the oceans, make it a bit more you know warm for them. But uh, again, twenty four houses. You know, there's twenty four different ways that it could go. But ultimately, I think it all comes down to uh, they would be looking for some blood. Yeah, because that's. You know, that's who they are. They're, they're, they're a warrior race. Uh, they would land, look for a fight. And if they didn't get a fight, well, they would just kill everybody. If they did get a fight, you know, it would depend on with whom. You know, if they're meeting with, you know, the Arnold Schwarzeneggers of 2063, <laughs> they might have a different opinion. Yeah. And that's the thing. It's Even though the Klingons presumably would have had to need to go and become a colonial power in order to like you say gain resources because they don't necessarily have those on their home world so there there is some element i think with klingons that they have to go out and conquer in order to gain resources i don't think like you say that that's their primary motivation you know i think it would be is there honor in the battle you know down here uh, and and th- that's very different from the romulan idea of bringing of colonizing you know, if factory bringing your people in as a protectorate, then ruling them in order to mine resources to gain their their capital strength, and it's it's so it's a different kind of approach, and that's something that the Cardassians probably would have done in more of a brutal sort of. Well, so mm. I suppose they would have done what they did to the Bajorans, wouldn't they? They would have just 
put everyone in camps and just had them working in that sense. Just shipping all that all that raw material back. We would have had a space station up in orbit to process <laughs> everything. And Deep you know, Space that, One. Yeah. Yeah, Deep Space One. <laughs> yeah, it's I, I think uh that's certainly, you know, something I, w- I would love to see explored in in one of the uh the aforementioned, you know, Star Trek deviations comics. Yeah. You know, like what what if the Cardassians had come down? Yeah. You know, treated Earth at, you know, we'd be a colony labor camp, all of our resources would be mined, sent up to Deep Space One for processing. Yeah, uh, or, or uh, Terak Nor it would be Terra Nor, maybe. Yeah, yeah, um, very good. Yeah, I like that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and we we would have been co-mingling. We would have been in a constant fight for our own freedom. You know, maybe trying to take over the space station, and it just would have been a constant a constant struggle. And we'd have to wait for um, another Federation to come along and free us from that oppression. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. That that's a fascinating idea, isn't it? The what if of what if we were the Bajorans? What if they'd done to to us what they did to them? Yeah, definitely. And it's entirely possible that would have happened. I suppose the only other major sort of possibility for what would have happened is is one that sort of does happen in first contact, which is the Borg. But I think the Borg let's assume that that the events of first contact are separate. If the Borg had turned up at that point, then it w- for one thing it probably would have been strange because they didn't they didn't know about humanity and they were in the Delta Quadrant and they were way away before this happened. So the chances of them even coming would have been slim, but there wouldn't have been any question with them. I mean, it would have just been assimilation, I guess. You know, just exactly the same system. Right. Well, we have examples in Star Trek Voyager of many different races staying under the Borg's radar simply by staying out of their way, not getting too technologically savvy and not engaging with them. And uh, there is that one race who basically lives right at the Borg's doorstep. And there, it's just a farming community. They lay low. And, uh, you know, the, the whole story goes where they actually, uh, one of their kids is infected with a parasite, a virus. Um, and then they're going to let their child be assimilated. And then that virus will kill off the entire Borg and allow them to, to proceed. Uh, that's Icheb, by the way, uh, who, we, who meets his end in Star Trek Picard. He sadly. does indeed. Yeah. Um man. In ha- uh, in harrowing fashion. In harrowing fashion. <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm just thinking Ooh. about that. And and I think that let's say, for example, a Borg cube was just happened to be flying by Soul System. Uh Zephram Cocking goes up, he does his thing, comes back, you know, the Borg say, Hey, that's interesting, let's go check it out. I don't think that there's enough technology specifically on Earth at this point in time that would actually be interesting to the Borg, that they would find relevant. Uh, I think that they would very likely come over, scan, be like, oh, okay, so they have warp. That's interesting. You know, let's log it and catalog it, send it back to the Borg Queen of the Delta Quadrant for further analysis. And then they would continue on their way. Because honestly, at 2063, the World War III devastation were, were uninteresting. It's that's as simple as that. And the only other, you know, let's say they did decide to assimilate us. I think that they would just scoop up Montana. I don't think that they would go out of their way for, you know, hey, let's go and pinpoint every every direct uh, survival colony that's down there. You know, let's just find the one guy who flew the ship. We'll grab mm. that. We'll grab some stuff around it and then we'll head out. 
Yeah, it's a really interesting way of looking at it, isn't it? Actually, yeah. Take what you need, you know, as opposed to what will what will uh, further achieve perfection. Because that's the thing, isn't it, with the Borg? It's not. It's it's different to a a malevolent alien race that would just come in and wipe everyone out for the fun of it. The Borg are looking for perfection. They're looking for a very specific idea. So they're looking to assimilate culture and idea in order to fa- so that's true isn't it that's absolutely that's a really good way of looking at it the, what is the benefit for them in you know i mean i know in first contact we see that they have assimilated the entire world but that's for dramatic purposes what is in short in, in real terms also, you know yeah 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 that, that's when they do that in first contact that's very specific to prevent humanity from ever becoming a problem you know if if it's 2063 yeah. and you know uh well Here's where time travel gets funky, right? So if we're in <laughs> original 2063, yeah. uh, and the Borg come by, and then they're going to fly away, it would take too many resources for them to assimilate the entire planet and be worthwhile. Um, they would just keep going. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's true. Yeah, it, 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 it's yeah, because the, uh, that's the assumption. The assumption is that they wouldn't, and I, I, yeah, I think you're right. I think you're on something there. Yeah very interesting to consider that really if even if i suppose you know like, as we say the borg are probably a long shot in terms of the what if of this yeah. happening um what about the ferengi oh. you, you you mentioned the the other races you know that that you know outside of like cardassians borg what what's your thoughts on the ferengi well i mean th- i was going to say that we end this on a lighter note because i'm thinking i was going to say what about the races where it could have ended in a good way or, you know, a a decent way alongside similar ways to the Vulcans. I genuinely think the Ferengi might be in that bracket. You know, ostensibly, you might think that the Ferengi would be a, uh, you know, a negative aspect, you know, alongside the others. But the Ferengi aren't, they're they're not a a race of conquerors, conquerors. They're not a race of enslavers. They're not, I know, Next Generation tried to paint them at first as being, you know, the noob enemies. But very quickly, everyone went, nah, <laughs> no, no, no. And, and they, you know, DS9 did a brilliant work of retooling them into 20th century capitalists, basically, which which is fantastic. So if we look at them on the basis that that is what they're like, I think they would have just seen, to an even greater extent than the Romulans, financially opportunity. And I think they would have maybe helped restore the the essentially what we have now they would have helped restore neoliberalist capitalism within within nation states and they would have they would have ha- you know helped to sort of profit ultimately from human resources human um you know that maybe if they if they helped earth become again a working functioning capitalist productive system then it would ultimately help their landum you know, would ultimately help them on a financial sense. So it might not. Yeah, we wouldn't necessarily have become the progressive culture that we that they mm-hmm. are in the Star Trek universe, but we might have been able to get back to some level of civilization. You know, with yeah. the Ferengi. I don't know. What do you think? Yeah, uh, I think I I tend to agree with you. I also think, uh, as made evident, uh, there there is one episode of Voyager where the two Ferengi who were launched through a wormhole while testing a warp hub yeah. uh, or a wormhole, uh, originally in Star Trek The Next Generation, uh, I think it was a little brilliant piece of connecting the two shows together. Yeah, it's good. Um, it, it, they, the Ferengi land on this planet and they kind of 
these are two very opportunistic, you know, they're, they're alone, they're, they're by themselves, and they land on this planet, and they kind of reshape that planet society to treat them as, like, gods, to bring them all their goods, and they get real greedy, and then Janeway comes down, and she's like, ah, well, this, well, I'm just not going to stand for this, and changes the whole situation. <laughs> so, I, I do think that there could be something like that, where the Ferengi come in, and they don't necessarily act like our captors, or they act as though they are, uh, you know, a malevolent spacefaring species, but they might, you know, similarly like to the Romans, kind of take advantage and, you know, all the, you know, what do we produce? We have diamonds, we have gold, you know, they would take all this, you know, combine it with their latinum um, and we would be giving, you know, a percentage of everything that we have to the Ferengi uh, in a similar in a similar way that we would with the Romulans, except we would be part of the Ferengi, uh, what is it? The Ferengi Trade Alliance? The Ferengi Commerce Authority, I think, is it? Yeah. Something like that? Yeah, yeah. Something like that. Yeah, we, we would just become a part of it. And I think, you know, we would become big traders. Uh, and instead of having great, vast starships dedicated to exploration, we would have great, big, vast starships dedicated to finding the next product. Totally, totally. And this this... This might ultimately be the most, the most realistic. You know, I said that about the Romulan example, but if anything is going to happen in the future involving aliens, they're more than likely going to be capitalists <laughs> and it's going to be about resources because, you know, if similar sort of, you, you know, civilizations have, have, have grown, I'm not convinced they're going to be these, you know, holier than thou, you know, mm-hmm. logical, wizened, you know, spacefaring races. Mm-hmm. But I, I think I like the idea of the Ferengi playing a con job. Definitely, I think you're. I think that's yeah. a great take there, Mike, because they to- they totally would try and just think, well, these humans are a bit stupid. You know, like like like, <laughs> like in Little Green Men, yeah. where they swiftly realise the army are a bunch of idiots. You know, and Quark's yep. like, right, we can make a book here. So they they would very quickly go, oh, these humans are a bit dim. Like, we can totally pretend that we're either gods or that we're, like, you know, something from their culture that will make them go, oh, okay, we look up to you. When they're thinking, right, we know what we're going to get out of them. Yeah, I think definitely could see that. Absolutely. But, again, it wouldn't necessarily lead to humanity's destruction. I tend to think the Ferengi would see the benefit in in some, some way helping to restore human productivity and civilization, you know, for their own benefit, ultimately. They wouldn't do it at the kindness of their hearts or anything, but they would do it in order to further the profit margin. But that be better than the Klingons. <laughs> oh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, ultimately, I think it would be a better fate than having the Romulans, the Cardassians, yeah. you know, absolutely the Klingons, you know. Um, and And we got lucky in that it was the Vulcans who landed, right? Yeah, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. yeah. That is yeah. just a fact, you know. There, there's, there's no denying it. Uh, but the Ferengi, you know, it, it's, it's a very logical course for society mm. to take. Yeah, no, it is. The, the only other races I could think of that were nice, <laughs> quote unquote, nice, <laughs> that maybe might have turned up. They're not really spacefaring races. It's, it's races like the Betazoids or the Deltons, who are these very sort of empathic. Mm-hmm. In the Deltons' case, you know, just horny. <laughs> I, I was I was going to suggest like what if the Ryzens came over? Oh wow, yeah, it we, we, they just turn everything into like Space Vegas, you know, <laughs> just be like one big, um, yeah, pleasure planet. Would, would that be so bad? Well, I'm not sure, Mike. I don't necessarily think it would be, to be honest. So, <laughs> from all our conclusions today, the race we want are the Ryzens. <laughs> 
Although, Team Riser. Team Riser. Although I'm pretty sure. Wasn't Riser controlled by the Orion Syndicate? In the, when, uh, I believe originally it was. So I can't, I get the feeling maybe that's what might happen. We might, the Ferengi maybe, but then we probably would get like a crime syndicate come in and <laughs> the mafia mm. come in and run. Mm. Turf wars. <laughs> yeah. We'd get involved with some turf wars. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe, maybe that's the other, that is the genuine other possibility actually that, that a, that a crime syndicate could get involved. But you know, who knows? I mean, it's, it's, it's a fascinating idea to explore. And like you say, I think there'd be loads of really interesting what if comics or something like that made out of this oh, idea. Yeah. Um, you could do a whole series, you know, what if the Romulans, what if the Klingons, what if the Ferengi? I think that would be fascinating. So if there's any any comics, you know, writers, artists out there, you know, you heard it here first, guys. This is a winner, you know, <laughs> it's a winner of an idea. It's been fun looking at this with you anyway, Mike. I mean, I, I think I think ultimately uh, we can conclude that humans got lucky in a big way. And <laughs> it would, yeah, it would be... In most of the situations, I think the idea of the Federation probably would never have happened, realistically. And we wouldn't actually have the Star Trek universe to talk about. But yeah, very interesting thinking about the possibilities. You're blended already.